Welcome back to Coming Up for Air with hosts Dominique Simone Levine, Laurie McDougall, and Kayla Solomon. This podcast is produced with love by the Allies and Recovery team in solidarity with our listeners. Come in and sit with us for conversations on the most pertinent topics for families navigating a loved one's addiction. We created this podcast along with the learning modules and discussion blog in support of you. We salute the work you are doing and your dedication to helping your loved one find a way through. And now, coming up for air. Hi, everyone. This is Laurie McDougall back on Coming Up for Air. I am sitting here with my lovely co-hosts, Kayla Solomon. How are you this morning, Kayla? Good. Good morning. And Dominique Simone Levine. Hi, Dominique. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Good morning, everybody. So, Dominique, you came up with a wonderful topic for us to discuss today, and we're calling it the Coming Home episode. Can you kind of describe what we're going to talk about today? Sure. Craft is useful in every phase of addiction, the addiction cycle, right? So if you have a loved one that struggles, you realize that it's not, I've decided to stop and never start again. And that's it, right? It's it's a series of reoccurrences. It's a series of learning about yourself, realizing how devastating addiction is to you and making a change. And that change comes about with the support of families through craft. A lot of the time you're improving the ability of that individual to see themselves as responsible and to see themselves as it's their journey and you're there to partner with them. So what happens when you do get them into treatment and now they're leaving? And that treatment can be extremely brief, like a detox or a hospital stay, which is what I've just been working with, a family whose, whose son, 39 years old, is just coming out of grand mal seizures from alcohol for which he was hospitalized and was released just a couple days ago. What I think families don't realize is that craft is useful at any point in this, right? So he had a seizure. He knew he had trouble with alcohol. He was trying to stop and it's caused a seizure. And now he's home after a brief stay in ICU. Family wants to know what to do how to use craft in these moments. So maybe it's detox, maybe it's a 30-day program, your loved one's coming home from. But anyway, it's, it's a period of anxiety for the family because you're eagle-eyeing them and you have this entire setup that you need to do in order to have them home. So I thought we'd start with describing for you what it's, what it's like to come home from a brief treatment episode. And I would call a brief treatment episode 30 days and anything less because you still feel horrible after 30 days of stopping use. And I don't care if that's alcohol, benzos, meth. I mean, any of it, you can expect that your sleep is disturbed, that your anxiety is up, that your depression is up, that you don't feel like eating. Like it takes a very long time for the body to recover and the mind to recover. Some professionals say that really 90 days is just let somebody eat and rest for 90 days and then start working on the recovery process because not much is going to go in in those first 90 days because you don't feel well. And so the point is that withdrawal and regaining a sense of mental and physical stability takes time and the family has to re realize that. And so what do you do to set up that gives your loved one the best chances of surviving this withdrawal and of 
transitioning into more long-term help and long-term health and non-use. I'd also like to add, and I hear this a lot, I'll hear my loved one is coming home after treatment and come to find out they were in detox and detox is not treatment. It's not. So if they were in a detox for four or five days or even a week, if they're coming home from that, they've received no treatment at all for the substance use disorder. And I think that's an important piece because family members don't see it that way. Not at all. I think we should take a moment and describe the difference between a detox and treatment. So a detox is a medical stabilization of life-threatening symptoms or side effects from stopping use. There are two drugs in particular that are dangerous that do require a detox, and that is alcohol and the other are benzodiazepines, both of which cause seizures when you withdraw. So you have to be very careful, and they're very dangerous, those seizures. The other drugs are mighty uncomfortable. I've withdrawn, I can't tell you how many times, from heroin, and it's awful, but it's not necessarily life-threatening. Dehydration is what you want to look for. Uh, when I heard the head of medical for a big prison talk about the day he put Gatorade, free-flowing Gatorade, in his pods, how much that um, supported hydration and how much better his, his folks did when they realized. And young people especially don't look terrible. And he said that can be surprising because they are really sick and they're really dehydrated. And you still, even though they may not present really sick and, and in withdrawals, um, you have to consider that they are. I'm going to jump in for one second on this because I think it's related to that next piece, but one of the main reasons that people relapse is to avoid this physical sensation and this physical experience because it is so painful, uncomfortable, disturbing, unsettling, and the, the instant cure is to keep using, is to go back to what you were using because it immediately takes away the, that experience. That's why we want to know about this, because it's a huge aspect of this process. This is a very essential time that if we don't watch it, this is when people relapse. They don't want to experience it. It's too uncomfortable, and they want to treat themselves, which is why they go back to using. I just want to underline what you said, Kayla, because it's never talked about. There was a piece in the Washington Post last week about a woman who talked about her withdrawals from heroin, how ghastly it was. And, and she made this point the first time I've ever really seen it is that people don't return to drugs because they want to do drugs. They return to drugs because they're so uncomfortable. It's so unsettling. It's so your whole body is trying to recover from potentially years of having had these artificial ingredients in the system and, and your body has somewhat adjusted both brain and body. So if you look at the relapse rates for people leaving medication-assisted treatment, they're very high. And people say, well, that's because they're not on medication-assisted treatment. And I would say, okay, but it's also because you created, when they left, a withdrawal scenario that was so, so uncomfortable. And somebody without a whole lot of emotional and, and practical supports is going to turn back to their drug because it's the easiest, cleanest, immediate way to stop it all. And it does perfectly, of course, right? And just to go back to the coming home piece, 
that when somebody is coming out of treatment, you're going to need to assume that they're uncomfortable, okay? Even if they've detoxed already, because there's a habit that they've had that they no longer have. Think about any kind of change. And discomfort is one of the leading causes of people using drugs, whether it's relapse or starting in the first place. People are trying to not be uncomfortable, whether it's a psychological issue, whether it's a social issue, whether it's physical. People do drugs to soothe themselves, to get comfortable, to treat something that's not feeling right to them. And so we need to have that at the front of our thought process because we're looking at comfort versus discomfort. And you, you know, of course, in this country, it's like, oh, buck up, do what you have to do. You could get through it, just hang in. It doesn't work like that. We need to come at this with compassion for people because if you don't have the tools to make it through discomfort, you're desperately trying to figure out how to get yourself comfortable. Which is why it's so dangerous when someone is coming off of opioids or has detoxed off of opioids and then immediately leaves the hospital and it puts them at a much higher risk of of an overdose because oftentimes they'll go out and they'll use to kind of relieve those symptoms again. That's why we see people overdose and go into the emergency room and then they're out of the emergency room within four hours after you know having some care, a very minimal amount, and then they head back out onto the streets after you know being released four hours later, and it puts them at a higher risk of overdosing again because they're just trying to relieve those symptoms. And that's why you see these repeated overdoses into the emergency room, back out, and then back into the emergency room and back out. So I think this is a really important piece for family members to understand what detox is all about and why when they come home, because really this podcast, this episode is about coming back home after some form of treatment or maybe after detox, why our loved ones are so darn irritable and angry and you can't talk to them and things are just so frustrating. They're like, there's like hairpin triggers for our loved ones and they're flipping out and they're, and the family member needing to have some understanding of what's going on with their loved one and why they're behaving the way they're behaving if they are going to come home. The one thing you didn't say, Lori, that I just would underline as well is that when you've been detoxed or you've been in treatment for 30 days, your tolerance for the drug or for the alcohol is way lower. And this is what causes a lot of overdoses. I know we know that. I just want to make sure we understand that that's what creates mortality and overdoses is the fact that people don't realize their tolerance has dropped so radically and they take any something like what they were used to taking in dose wise and it's too much. And like that fentanyl is in so many things, right? Fentanyl is, is actually deadly. So the poisoning of the illicit substances with fentanyl really ups the risk level of overdosing, whether you've actually been through detox or not. Or if you're opioid naive, right? Because maybe it's someone that's that doesn't use an opioid, but uses something like cocaine. And if cocaine is then laced with fentanyl, you're totally opioid naive. You do not have any tolerance for it. And that's why there's an increase in overdoses. 
In fact, I'm pretty sure looking at a lot of the numbers, like 75% of overdoses right now are um, stimulants alongside fentanyl. So I just want to bring us back to the reason we're talking about this is that no matter what treatment somebody's in, at the beginning of their treatment, they will be detoxing. Okay, so you're either in a detox and then you are let go, which means that all you've done in that program is gotten the strongest, most concentrated part of the drugs out of your system. And your body is going to going to continue to release them if you stay off of them. And then if you're in a treatment program, often the beginning of the treatment includes a detox so that you're doing it with the, in that program. And then you're working on other tools. So we're going to go into now what a treatment program looks like, where you're getting actual treatment. There's the inpatient treatment where there are a tremendous number of groups most of the time. And of course, without saying everybody knows this, depending on the program, the quality of the treatment varies tremendously. But the idea is that you're with other people and professionals who are helping you to gain tools to be able to cope with the underlying issues that you have that are creating use, or they're having you look at pattern your patterns of use, or they're having you understand what addiction is, what substance use is, and how the substances that you're using affect your body. The, but the ultimately the goal of a treatment program is to allow you to get in touch with yourself, to understand the substance use issues that you have. And if it's a really good program, you're going underneath it, looking at the mental health issues, hopefully getting treated for the mental health issues, and also learning tools to be able to work with all of that. That's not the only form of treatment. I think it's really important to bring up that that's the traditional view of treatment of what it is, is going away in a bed for, you know, 30 days, whatever it is. But also there are intensive outpatient programs, there are partial hospitalization programs, there are outpatient programs, there are substance use counselors, there are groups that you can attend, there are mutual aid groups, there are self-help groups, and then there's also medicines that can be prescribed. There is a really wide spectrum of of treatments that are available for people with SUD. If I would just say that often families don't know inpatient or stay home, Lori is just describing our as community-based treatment. And inevitably your loved one's going to come home to a community. And if they've been away to treatment, they're going to have to set up an all new program for themselves in the community, all the things that Lori was just describing. So it's inpatient is it feels safer. It doesn't necessarily work better than community treatments. It's up to the family, the individual, the money, the ability to access an inpatient place. Certainly families feel better when their loved ones tucked away somewhere for 30 days, but that doesn't solve the problem. It's just going to help you get into this new direction with craft and with, with somebody who's now medically detoxed a little bit of idea of what's going on with addiction because they've been talked to for 30 days and in groups and so on, but now they're home. And I have a family who's 39 year old is living with his girlfriend has for years, just came home from having seizures 
for trying to stop drinking on his own. And he came out of the hospital and came home. And so the family calls and says, now what? He's home. And I said, okay, well, it's community treatment because he has a stable home. He has a mother and a girlfriend who both are on board and, and willing to help. So it's about taking a look around, look around in the community, looking online. And for him to have the biggest set of options to choose from that he possibly can so that you're not looking like a controlling parent or girlfriend, but he has to choose a few things that help jumpstart and maintain abstinence now that he's home, right? That's a big piece of what you might talk about. And then there's the, this other piece that I don't think families recognize because their loved one's been out of work, underemployed, not housed. I mean, there's so many, it's such a mess that they come out of treatment and you and you as the family go, okay, we're good to go. You need the job. You need to make the money to pay the rent, to get a place. You've got to move, 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 move. And, and this poor guy, you know, has just had grand mal seizures. He's just out of the ICU. He, he has a week. And I beg the family, please, if there's any way to support, because the mother's paying half the rent of the apartment with the girlfriend. Is there a way so that he doesn't have to think about money, think about work, for at least 30 days, maybe a little longer, so that he can work on his body and his mind and get himself a little bit stronger. And he can take this first month and just really go out into the community, go out to all these different kind of groups, find his way and develop some, both some mind and some body health. For me, as somebody in recovery, exercise, taking care of the body continues to be one of the most important things I don't do well, but I try because I realize that if you don't have connection with your body, if you don't feel strong in your body, you're even weaker in your mind. And so both always both think both. This guy used to do judo. I said, let's, so he used to know his body really well. Let's get him to reconnect with his muscles and there's food and there's walks. I said, don't even worry about his head so much. Just get his body moving, get him fed, get him slept. I'm just going to ask to stop you there because I know exactly what you're talking about, Dominique. And I kind of want to drive your point home to our listeners. So I'm hoping I can do an activity with both you and Kayla here on this episode and maybe ask listeners, grab a pen, grab a piece of paper and maybe jot a few things down. This is something that I do in rest meetings to help families understand what our loved ones are going through. And looking at this stuff before your loved one comes home is actually the best way to, uh, to address this issue. But oftentimes what I hear is, oh, he's home or she's home, now what do I do? And I'm like, well, you're in a much better position if they're not home and they're coming home to say, you know what, in order for you to come home, in order for it to work for us or together, let's sit down and discuss how things are going to look while you're here. Putting some things down on the table in front of the person and, and kind of including them in the solutions. So just for example, I'm just trying to think of some things you know what, in order for me to be okay with this, I I'm, I'm need to know that you're not using opioids while you're living in my house, just because it's unsafe for me, it's unsafe for you. 
what are the consequences? Like what's going to happen if you do go back to using or, you know, just all these little things. What I'm going to need is that we're going to family counseling. So you just kind of line it up so that you have a picture of what it's going to look like and what's going to happen if it doesn't look that way. I want to do this activity to kind of show you what the world kind of looks like to your loved one when they do come home and why you might hear things like, oh my God, you have no idea. Would you just get out of my life? You trigger me. It's you. If you didn't do this, I wouldn't feel that way. You know, I'm going out of my mind. Why does that happen? So let me ask you a few questions. I would ask family members. So I'm going to ask you and Kayla, Dominique and Kayla, I'm going to ask you, if you're a family member and pretend you are right now, how do you know your loved one is working on their recovery? Let's list those things out. And so I do this in a group and I get a ton of answers. And I'll get you started on a few ideas of what a family member might say. They stopped lying to me. They're not irritable. They're polite. Yeah, they're polite. They eat healthy. I've had one person say they smile. They smile all the time. What else? Well, they're not using. They're not using. They're totally abstinent. They say hello when they walk in the door. And they're taking care of their hygiene. Yep. Yep. They're taking care of their hygiene. I've seen them make sandwiches during the middle of the day. Yep. They're getting a job. They're financially independent. They get a sponsor. They're going to meetings. They're doing it consistently. They're attending all of their appointments with their doctors. They're going to their psychiatrist and their psychologist. On and on and on. They're taking care of their old court hearings and, and arrest records that they've never cleaned up. Their house is spotless. The house is spotless and they're working on their credit. <laughs> and no love relationships. Not for the first year. No, not for the first year. Like the recovery unicorn. <laughs> yes. Okay. Well, I'm glad you're saying that. Let me ask you this. At the same time, what does the rest of, and I say, I use the word treatment in our meetings and I clarify treatment could be anything. It could be 30 days, 90 days in a bed. It could be meetings. It could be, you know, they going to their clinic to get their prescribed meds, which that in and of itself can be a really difficult thing for a person to do. But tell me, what does the world, your loved one's world, how does your loved one indicate to the world that's putting these pressures on them? How do they let that world know that they're working on their recovery? I don't know, because this is where, to me, the lying comes in. <laughs> but how do they... If you're in treatment, I mean, and I see this, the 30-day treatment, there's lots of pressure. How do they know? They know you're going to all of your groups. You have a sponsor. You're going to meetings. You're taking your meds as prescribed. You are, right, like there's a whole host. You're going to a peer specialist and you're connecting with them and you're going to your local peer recovery support services and you're passing all of your urine tests. They're negative. Working the steps. You're working the steps. You're not smoking. <laughs> yeah, some treatment facilities are like, you can't smoke, you can't drink coffee, you can't, I mean, the list goes on and on. Okay, then I stop everybody and I'm like, okay, 
let's read through the list of what the family member is now, you know, what's an indication to them and what the world is basically also indicating needs indication that your loved one is actually working on their recovery. And I will start reading. They have a sponsor, they're going to meetings, they're seeing a psychologist, they're seeing a psychiatrist, they're taking their meds as prescribed, they're getting up, their hygiene is wonderful, they're cleaning up after themselves, they're taking care of any kind of legal issues that they have, they're financially stable, they're happy, they're smiling, they are affectionate, and the list goes on, and we end up with like 50 things And then I tell everybody, okay, let me ask you this question. How many of you are excellent, are experts at doing all of this stuff? And everybody's faces are like, oh, I'm not. (laughs) I mean, are you, Kayla? Are you, Dominique? Yeah, I've seen people shaking their heads. No, no. And this is what your loved one's world is when they first come home, everybody is every day, every moment of every day, well, how are you feeling today? Which that's a loaded question. Well, what are you doing? Are you going to go and get a job? Are you going, did you make an appointment with your doctor? What time did you make it for? Are you, did you miss your appointment? Did you make it? I mean, the list goes on and on. How long are you gonna stay in that bed today? Are you going to get up? Don't play. What do you? Oh, my God. All you do is play video games. And did it when really getting up out of bed and brushing your teeth when you first gone into recovery is a big deal, is a big, big deal. So just kind of what Dominique was saying, 30 days, I actually think 30 days is not that's not a long time. I also would recommend that family members go back to that list that we've written out. And oftentimes it includes things like kind of like what you were talking about earlier, Dominique, they're going to yoga, they're doing meditation, they're going to exercise class, or they're engaging in hobbies that they used to like, oh, oh, they're getting rid of old friends and they're not connecting with old friends anymore. They're creating a brand new sober community. I hear that a lot. And I'm like, yeah, how difficult is that? You know, if I ask you to pick up your stuff and move and go somewhere else, how difficult is it for you to make a new community for yourself? Never mind living in a place for 30 years. And now you've got to make all new friends that fit a particular requirement. How hard is that? But my question is often to family members, let's look back at this list. Why don't you star each thing that your loved one is doing? Let's not focus on the stuff that they aren't doing that you would like to see. Let's focus on what they are doing and start reinforcing anytime they're engaging in that positive behavior. So for example, like what Dominique was saying, if your loved one was exercising previously, maybe lifting weights or going to CrossFit gyms or going to your local Planet Fitness. Anytime your loved one engages in that particular behavior, oh, wow, that's great. So uh, you found the local CrossFit gym. Good for you. Good for you. And just encourage that little tiny baby piece at a time. And then you can introduce maybe one or two new things into their life a little bit later on. 
maybe they're not exercising. Maybe you can't get, you know, maybe they're not getting out of bed. Simply going to the door in the morning and saying, hey, I'm running down to Cumberland Farms and I'm getting a coffee. Would you like to come with me? And if they say no, okay, do you want me to bring back a cup of coffee and do it at least like once a week, try and get them to go to Cumbies to get a, a cup of coffee. Eventually they may say yes, or maybe they're not exercising like they used to. Hey, you know, your birthday's coming up. I was trying to think of a good gift for you. Would you like it if I maybe got, they opened up this new gym and I remembered how much you loved exercising. How, how about if I got you a membership? Would that make a, a good birthday gift? You're not drawing attention to the substance use. You're not drawing attention to problems. You're not talking about problems constantly. You're just inviting them to get back to some kind of behavior that they enjoyed. You're trying to bring back some positive behavior. Does that make sense? It certainly does. It sounds like so little given the the immensity of having them home in this state. It feels like the family needs, when you've warned them, you've talked to the person before they come home, and this is what the family life needs to look like if you come home. We need some assurance that you're not going to be using in the house. Using in the house, right? Because you cannot control using outside the house, but you can request that they not use in the house. You can request that they call if they're not coming home by a certain hour. You can request, right? So you start putting down these requests of how adults behave in a household together in a respectful manner. And then you say, and if this doesn't work, we're just going to find more help for you. We're going to have to find some place for you to go that may be more intensive than home. Um, but we want this to work. And we want that. We want to try it this way. And so everybody knows that it's transitory. It can stop at any moment. And if it doesn't work, you verbally got an agreement that he'll go, she'll go to something more intensive or get on a drug that they haven't been willing to get on or, or whatever it is. But um, it's a lot of patience. You're still worried. You're still very scared of relapse, um, but you're going to have to behave in a way that is just observing small changes, encouraging where you can, staying out of what they are or are not doing in terms of that recovery list, because that's not your business. You can observe and know whether or not they're going, it's working, they're taking. You're going to have to do that through observation and instinct and an understanding of what your loved one looks like in these different states. But it's not a time to pin them to the wall when they're not behaving in the way you somehow assume they, they would as soon as they came back from all being cleaned up and ready to go. Teflon new. Another thing to think about is like in our list that we made when we started talking about they're not irritable. They're, you know, they're smiling. Kayla, I think you said something about they walk through the door and they say hello. Actually, a lot of family members think that those are indications that their loved one is in recovery. When actually, if your loved one is irritable, and can't talk to you right now or is angry, that actually may be an indication that they're in recovery. I think this is a good place for us to end. And so just in summary, what this coming home episode, basically 
as always, and this is our mantra, is check your expectations. Because when somebody's in early recovery or just getting clean or just starting what we call the healing process from being addicted to like really working on themselves and getting cleaned out, they are in a very fragile state and their bodies are recovering from being wrecked and being dependent on particular substances. They're uncomfortable, they're edgy, they're basically dysregulated physically and emotionally. And so it's really important that we look at what are our expectations of people. You get to meet with them and talk to them about the possibilities, but really check your expectations at the door and don't expect, and I think what you just said, Lori, was really important, that they're going to be happy and joyous because they're uncomfortable. So that's part of the recovery process. And early recovery is very different from later recovery. And I think that's really what we're talking about is early recovery, early detox, early getting off of medications or not medications, but um, substances that they're abusing. So we want to have realistic expectations that this is a transition time. And it's important to have realistic expectations, be gentle, be caring, be connected, but not that inquisitor thing that we do. You know, you don't have a lot of control over this. So you want to just be connected. Remember, it's always about the connection and then hopefully people will be able to share with you. Thanks, Kayla. That's a great summary. I just wanted to add that when Lori calls her meetings rest groups, that they are the groups that we offer free of charge on the member site. Um, and you can become a member and attend Kayla's amazing support group on Wednesday night. Lori has rest groups. This, this is what she's created, rest groups, which are meetings based on the allies curriculum. So there's a great deal there for you to come talk with us directly, participate in some learning. And also, I want to let our listeners know we're, we still have a special going on right now on the Allies and Recovery website. If you do half of the modules in the e-learning center, if you do half of the modules in a 10-day period of time, um, you qualify for a free five-hour training. And uh, it's an immersive training where you get really immersed in craft. With Lori. You get Lori for five hours. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that, people. <laughs> so thank you. Great conversation, ladies. And I look forward to our next discussion. Goodbye, everybody. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode of Coming Up for Air spoke to you. If you're listening in today on a podcast platform that isn't the Allies member site, please take a moment to give us a five-star rating. This helps others find the show more easily. If you have a suggestion for a new topic or a guest for the show, please reach out through the Contact Us form on alliesinrecovery.net. Special thanks to our hosts, our guests, and our production team.